Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. Humans and all other multicellular organisms on Earth are not just one species. In fact, we are super organisms. We're made up of a collection of closely associated species that have complex interactions. We call this superorganism a holobiont. And our holobiont is more than the sum of its parts. Having a diverse array of microorganisms associated with us has been strongly linked to health and wellness. But unfortunately, because of a number of factors which we will talk extensively about, our human microbiome is becoming extinct and it's estimated that we have lost over 50% of the diversity which formerly inhabited our bodies. Today on Full Scope, we're going to talk about genetic diversity and the extinction of the human microbiome. I hope everyone got a chance to listen to part one, and if you didn't, please go back and take a look. But we talked pretty extensively about what the human genome is actually made up of, and that is 3.2 billion base pairs linked together in what we call DNA or deoxyribonucleic acid. These 3.2 billion base pairs code for 20,000 to maybe as much as 25,000 genes. Essentially, these genes code for proteins. On top of this, we also have our mitochondrial DNA, which is much smaller, about 16,569 base pairs, coding for about 14 proteins. But this is only a fraction of the total genetic material that can contribute to our health. Because a healthy human has about 10,000 bacterial species on them, and each of those bacteria have about 1,000 genes, it's possible that these microorganisms contribute anywhere from 100 to 500 times the amount of genetic material that our own bodies contribute. And so if you look at this equation by genes, we are more bacteria than humans. Crazy. Remember, our microbiome is made up of a diverse group of different types of organisms. It includes single-celled prokaryotic organisms that lack nuclei, like different species of bacteria and archaea. It consists of various types of fungi, mainly single-celled fungi like yeast or candida. 
It consists of single-celled eukaryotic cells, or organisms with one cell and a nucleus that we call protists. It consists of many, many, many different viruses, probably many more than we realize. And it also sometimes consists of larger multicellular organisms, like worms or helminths. These microorganisms literally cover the surface of our bodies. They're on our skin, our eyes, and all of our mucous membranes. They cover our entire gastrointestinal tract, from our mouth to our anus, and even go up into things like the biliary tract. They cover our urogenital systems all the way up into our kidney areas. They cover the female reproductive tract up through the vagina, through the cervix, into the uterus, and probably up higher as well. They cover the entire inside surface of our lungs. And it's possible that they even sometimes live inside our bodies. As stated now multiple times, these microorganisms, and particularly having a diverse, healthy microbiome, are essential to human health. And low microbiome diversity is linked to several acute and chronic diseases, including obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, some of the biggest killers of our time, autism, a condition that is plaguing more and more young people, mental health problems, an absolute epidemic in the United States and probably a pandemic worldwide, as well as many types of cancer, but especially colorectal cancer. Remember, since 1990, the incidence of colorectal cancer in people younger than 50 has more than doubled. These little guys are very important, and we are destroying them. All right, before we take this conversation any further, I need to talk to you guys about poop. And not just any poop, a special kind of poop called coprolites. Coprolites are essentially fossilized poop. And we can find this stuff buried in Earth's crust and study it and learn interesting things. Scientists have been looking at fossilized poop from Utah and Mexico that was found in rock shelters from ancient humans. This poop was greater than a thousand years old. And what we learned by studying the microorganisms or even or rather fossilized microorganisms in that poop is that we have lost many, many different species of microorganisms that used to live in our stool. In fact, it is these fossilized poop that show us that our microbiome has experienced a mass extinction event. And back in the day, say a thousand years ago, none of these bacteria had any, any evidence of markers of antibiotic resistance in their genomes. In fact, in just a total of eight poop specimens from these caves, scientists found 38% novel species things that no longer inhabit any microorgan, any human guts found on Earth today. These included even types of species that are only associated with pathologies, like, like treponemal species. So, pretty crazy, but 
we can tell from our poop that there has been a big change in the organisms, the diversity, and the makeup of species that used to populate human guts. Alright, so let's talk about why the human microbiome is undergoing a mass extinction event. And the main reason is the increased use of antibiotics. And while we certainly are still using too many antibiotics in the clinic, we're giving too many people with viral illnesses antibiotics, that's not even the biggest part of the problem. In fact, 70% of the antibiotics that we use are actually given to our livestock. We feed it to animals like cattle and chicken. And what we find is that these organisms can get much bigger when we give them antibiotics. They're certainly not healthier. It certainly doesn't improve the quality of the meat, but they do get much larger. And they also don't get bacterial infections. But the problem is, these antibiotics can build up in the tissues of the animals, and then when we eat them, those antibiotics get into our guts and can hurt the healthy microorganisms that are so essential to our health. On top of this, we use a chemical pesticide called glyphosate. Glyphosate also goes by the name Roundup, and it's the most common pesticide used worldwide. We're going to talk more about glyphosate, but what is crazy is that it's known to be an antibiotic as well. In fact, in 2011, Monsanto patented it as an antibiotic. We spray glyphosate directly on our crops. That includes all of our Roundup-ready corn and wheat and soy, but we also spray it directly on crops like wheat as a desiccant to dry it out to get it ready for us to eat. So many of our food and grocery stores has measurable quantities of glyphosate still on it. And this human carcinogen and antibiotic is also going into our guts and killing our healthy bacteria. What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least, give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. Other toxins or chemicals may also be contributing to the death of the microorganisms on our bodies. Remember that there's well over 100,000 novel chemicals in our environments uh, or in our environment that didn't used to be there. Our poor diet. And so we essentially, instead of eating a, a variety of fruits and vegetables and, and different plants, we tend to just eat a small amount of different types of jug junk food made up of simple carbs and sugar. And that leads to a lack of microbial diversity. And in fact, having a diet rich in healthy fruits and vegetables can improve microbial diversity. Cesarean sections are another reason why our microbiome is probably less robust. The first thing that happens to a newborn baby is it comes out of the mom's vaginal tract 
head down in very close proximity to the mom's butthole, essentially. And what happens during the delivery process is it's messy. It's really messy. There's usually poop and urine all over the place. And what's crazy is that that fluid in the vaginal canal, that poop and that urine, is probably an important first exposure for that newborn baby to help colonize that baby with important bacteria. Now, remember that when we're inside, in utero, we are essentially sterile. We do not have a bunch of microorganisms living all over ourselves. It's not until we're exposed to the outside world that we become colonized and populated with microorganisms. And so, if you think about it, what happens when we do a cesarean section is we bypass the vagina and the whole poop urine mess that happens as part of delivery. And we pull that baby out in this really sterile operating room environment and it gets exposed to all these really potentially harmful hospital bacteria and bugs and other things that aren't part of the natural cycle of colonizing our bodies. And that's probably not great. You can imagine that with a, with a newborn baby, all of the real estate is wide open. And so if you get the wrong bacteria and the wrong bugs in there, that could set you up for a, a potentially bad future. For that reason, we do see practices like vaginal seeding of, uh, of newborn babies where we'll actually we'll take a vaginal swab and then rub that swab on the baby's face and mouth so that it gets some of the exposure to the organisms. And what's crazy is, you know, do we need to be considering uh, an anal swab as well as part of that? Well, I probably so. I mean, it sounds gross, but man, I think uh, hospital hospital bugs and bacteria are also pretty gross. There's also uh, probiotic products that are that are coming out and showing really really great promise that I'm going to talk about as well. But but do note that cesarean section is a risk factor for for dysbiosis or problems with with microbiota and in fact also notice part of that 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 really the microbiome is, is usually passed down from one generation to the other so we get our microbiome usually from our parents and we share it quite liberally in our households and we'll talk more about that but um, it's both disgusting and fascinating how how connected we are and how much organism sharing we probably do with those who live around us a uh, Lack of exercise is also associated with a, a lack of gut diversity. Increased stress is strongly associated with a lack of gut, diversi gut diversity. Uh, cleaner drinking water and the use of chlorinations is, is associated with a lack of, of, of biodiversity in our gut. Just the fact that we are removed from nature. So we live in these sterile uh, houses and environments. We're not around dirt. We're not around plants. We're not around the ecosystem that we were evolved to be around, and that has contributed to a loss of diversity in our microbiome. Formula feeding is, is actually can be a risk factor for loss of diversity in the microbiome. Essentially, breast milk does contain some important ingredients that help to, to establish the important bacteria that need to colonize the gut early in, in life. And so a lack of breast milk is, is, is maybe not such a great thing. 
Now, that being said, I think sometimes we shame moms too much for using formula. I know my baby, Kaler, uh, ended up using formula after the first three months because my wife just wasn't making much milk because of some other issues. And I, I think that babies can be totally healthy raised on formula feeding alone. So don't don't let that stress you out, but it certainly needs to be mentioned here as a risk factor for lack of diversity. Another risk factor for lack of diversity is the use of penicillins during labor and during delivery for those moms who are positive for group B strep. Remember that between 35 and 37 weeks during pregnancy, we test every mom for group B strep in the vaginal canal. And if mom is positive, we usually encourage her to take penicillins during labor and during delivery. And this is because babies born to mothers with group B strep in their vaginal canal have higher rates of serious infections. In fact, group B strep is the most common cause of serious infections in newborns. It causes really scary things like sepsis or severe whole body infections, pneumonia, and even meningitis. And, you know, so essentially there's there's a pretty good reason why we, we give these moms penicillin. We're trying to prevent these horrible things we've seen in babies. And I certainly am not encouraging moms not to to utilize penicillin prophylaxis if they are group B strep positive, but there certainly are probably many more ramifications to this practice than we originally thought. And in the future, we're probably going to need to find safer uh, or less potentially harmful strategies to prevent group B strep sepsis in our newborns because of the collateral damage that can be caused by antibiotics. And the final cause that I can think of right now are certain types of pharmaceutical medications. For instance, proton pump inhibitors block acid production in the stomach, and they've been shown to decrease the absorption of minerals and also change the microbiome makeup of the stomach and the rest of the gut. These medicines can be very helpful in the short term, but the problem is way, way, way too many people take them every day, year after year, and that is a really bad thing. We've seen We've seen already the the increased incidence in fractures because of the the lack of important uh, mineral absorption for things like calcium, but they're probably also affecting the health of our gut in many other ways as well. Another group of medications that that hurts our guts and hurts our microbiome are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, things like ibuprofen and naproxen. These things are really easy for everyone to get, and again, they can be really helpful for pain as a, as a short-term kind of band-aid treatment, but people taking them long-term and, and even longer than, than a few doses are probably really hurting their guts in a, in a profound way. And those are just, just the tip of the iceberg. There's many more pharmaceutical medicines that, that negatively affect our gut health, and all of those can cause, cause dysbiosis or problems with the gut microbiome. So just to recap, the main reasons are antibiotics, chemical pesticides like glyphosate, which is also an antibiotic, other toxins in, in, uh, that are new to our environment, a poor diet, a lack of fruits and vegetables in the diet, cesarean sections, a lack of exercise, stress, cleaner drinking water, chlorination of our drinking water, removal of humans from nature and the natural environment, 
formula feeding, penicillin prophylaxis for group B strep, and then numerous medications like proton pump inhibitors and NSAIDs. All of those things have contributed to the extinction of the human microbiome. And now I know there's reasons why we use some of those things or do some of those things, but I really believe that in the future we're going to have to find safer alternatives because the collateral damage is, is probably leading to, or at least contributing to, this enormous upsurge in, in numerous chronic and inflammatory conditions that we are seeing right now. And the two biggest factors by far are the antibiotic use in, in farm animals and the chemical pesticide use of, of glyphosate. Essentially, our food now contains antibiotics that kill our gut microorganisms. This is simply not acceptable. All right, let's talk a little bit about glyphosate because I think this is a tremendous contributor to the extinction of the human microbiome. And I think that it is potentially driving or at least contributing to the epic rise in a number of chronic diseases, and in particular, autism. Glyphosate is a small molecule. It was invented in 1970, and it was first utilized as a, a chelator. So essentially, it was, it was uh, first being used to strip pipes, to grab metals from pipes, and it's really good at chelating and grabbing important metals that are that are essential for health, things like calcium, magnesium, manganese, copper, and zinc. Pretty shortly after this, we figured out that it was also a pretty powerful pesticide. I think that, uh, as the story goes, or at least as I've heard it, it literally would, would run out the end of pipes onto grasslands or into plant matter areas, and people noted that all the plants that it touched would die. And so they figured out that it was actually a, a fairly good pesticide as well. And, and Monsanto, the big chemical company, absolutely picked this up and ran with it. And what they did was they started developing crops that were resistant to Roundup. And in 1996, the first round of Roundup Ready crops were introduced. And so with these Roundup Ready soy and Roundup Ready wheat and Roundup Ready corn, a lot of farmers to do was grow their crop. And then instead of having to worry about picking all the little weeds around the crop, they could just tent their entire field with glyphosate, killing the weeds around the crops, but not killing the crops. The problem with this is obvious. You would get the actual herbicide on the crops that people were eating. In 2006, this process actually went a step further. And people discovered that you could spray glyphosate onto crops like wheat to help dry it out and get it ready for harvest and ready for storage into silos. And so in 2006, people started spraying glyphosate directly onto things like wheat as a desiccant to dry it out, and its use just skyrocketed. The problem is, is we were spraying it directly onto the foods that we were eating. These foods were then ending up in grocery stores, and even today we can, we can, we can find a lot of glyphosate on a lot of our foods in grocery stores, things that we're consuming directly. And this is in everything from fresh, fresh produce all the way up into processed foods in bags and boxes that are stored all over the shelves. The problem, though, like we said, is glyphosate is not safe for humans.
One, it's now widely accepted as a probable human carcinogen. A lot of people would say it's a definite human carcinogen. And in the legal system, there's been over $10 billion paid out for people who have gotten have gotten various types of cancer and been exposed to large amounts of glyphosate. On top of that, it's a known antibiotic. In 2011, it was patented by Monsanto for this purpose. So we are literally eating all this food that has an antibiotic directly on it that can kill our guts. Now, there's a lot of other health and safety concerns with glyphosate, and I'm not going to talk about them. But what is really scary is what we find when we look at the the increase in autism over the last several years. And that increase in autism has happened exactly in step with the introduction of glyphosate, as has things like wheat sensitivity. All of a sudden, in 2006, when we started spraying glyphosate all over our crops, people started all of a sudden coming up with, I'm gluten sensitive, I can't eat gluten. This is when this whole thing exploded. I don't think there's any coincidence. And when you look at how much glyphosate is used, 280 million pounds annually in the U.S. alone, and you look at some of these problems, these medical and health problems in our society that have been just increasing about for the last 20 years, it's hard to not notice an extremely strong correlation. And as we learn more about the important impact of the human microbiome on our own health, it seems more and more obvious that anything we're doing that is disrupting that microbiome should be looked at very thoroughly as a contributor to why our health is deteriorating. I want to talk even more about that, and I want to talk much more about the autism thing, but I want to finish this part two of genetic diversity and the extinction of the human microbiome with a few tips on how to improve your microbiome. So the first thing is a healthy diet. And because of the amount of pesticides and herbicides on conventionally grown food, particularly in the United States, and, and I will say as part of that, for instance, Europe only allows one-tenth of the glyphosate residue on their food that the United States allows. They will not even import our conventionally grown agriculture because it has too much chemical and pesticide residue on it. And so for that reason, particularly in the United States, I, I have to recommend that people eat organic foods. If you're eating fruits and vegetables, it needs to be organic. If you're eating, if you're eating animal products, it needs, if it's cattle, it needs to be grass-fed, grass-finished. If it's chicken, it needs to be free-range. Eggs need to be free-range. And other, other meat products need to be similarly grass grass-fed. They cannot be fed Roundup-ready corn, and these animals cannot be given antibiotics. One thing that's crazy that I've noticed in my clinic is that I have a few people that, that tend to live in Europe for a few months of the year, and they will tell me, I notice when I go to Europe, my belly stops hurting. I don't have any of these gut problems that I tend to have when I'm living in the United States. And to me, that's just an eye-opener, because when you combine the the chemical pesticide residue thing 
and, and by that I mean us having much more of that on our food in the United States, it's just eye-opening that they go to Europe, the place where these, these chemical pesticides are much more limited and people are much less exposed that all of a sudden their gut gets better. And so eating a really healthy diet is really important for the health of the gut microbiome and probably the most important thing. Physical activity is another really important thing for the gut microbiome. Moving regularly, so walking throughout the day, as well as more vigorous exercise a few times a week is just really important. Along with diet and eating really healthy, high-quality food, having a variety of food is also important. You can imagine just like humans have maybe a little bit different microbiome than other mammals, which have different microbiomes than other animals, Every different fruit and vegetable you eat is going to have a different array of microorganisms that live on it. And it's going to have nutrients that support a different array of microorganisms. So eating diverse fruits and vegetables is going to be important. That's why I'm telling my patients, you know, try to eat five to ten different colors of fruits and vegetables a day. And in particular, cruciferous vegetables or things in the broccoli family like broccoli, arugula, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts seem to be really helpful as well. So try and work those into your diet if you can. And then finally, positive thinking and reduced stress have been shown to both be correlated with a healthy and diverse microbiome. We need to get away from this idea that our thoughts and how we think and how our attitude is do not contribute to our health. In fact, it is one of the most important things. Being positive, not being so stressed out, forgiving people can improve the health of our microbiome. So take those tips and, and, and use them and you will be healthier. And one of the reasons they will make you healthy is because they will give you a healthier gut microbiome. When I look around at Americans, I am seeing people that are heavier and heavier and sicker and sicker. And a lot of people will say, oh, our genes haven't changed in the last few years, our environment has. And I think that is a true statement, but I would say with the caveat that yes, our genes actually have changed. While the 20 to 25,000 genes that make up our human genome have been essentially unchanged for thousands and possibly even millions of years, the multitude of genes that are contributed from our microbiome can change rapidly and over the last several decades have changed tremendously. This is all due to our unhealthy environment. Having a safe, healthy place to live is essential for human health. I need everybody to understand this and until we start focusing on and prioritizing the health of the world around us, our human health will continue to deteriorate. Thank you so much for listening to the Full Scope Podcast and investing in your health. I'm Dr. Bill Rannenberg. If you're enjoying the content, 
please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com. Our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now, today, become the best possible individual you can be. Thanks. Bye-bye.